uh, what powerful uh, words, what great doctrine taught that we just sing, and uh, we were singing to one another, and singing uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs uh, to one another, and that's part of our edification as we worship the Lord together, and uh, what, what great truths in that hymn. Romans chapter number 6, Romans chapter number 6, we, we will step out of our series, our series on prophecy, uh, as we will look at uh, this particular topic tonight, as we will... Uh, Lord willing, go through in the uh, short time that we have here before the communion service. I want to make sure we have plenty of time uh, for the communion service here in just a, a little bit. But we will be looking at our identification in Christ, our identification in Christ. There is a lot that is said in our culture about our identity. I don't know about you, but I get tired of hearing about all the various convoluted, perverted forms of identity that are out there. Now, we've all been to a government office. We've all been to get something done for the government. And it doesn't seem to matter how many papers you bring. There's always something else that you need. I'm so glad that when we were, when the kids were uh, little, I can't remember how old they were, we would have been around 2014, 2015, I'm so glad that we got photo IDs for them, and we got them about the time that Homeland Security was setting up the, the star on the, on the IDs, and that next summer in 2015, we took a, a trip, the whole family took a trip out uh, to California, and we were going through the Indianapolis International Airport, and they all had their stars, and I think Kelly did, and so they got ushered up to the front of the line, and then poor old dad didn't have a star on his ID, and so I had to go through all the security check, but for some reason, that star gave them access. Their ID, apparently... They had passed all the security checks ahead of time through the, that star, which is almost kind of scary. Of course, they were, uh, they, were, they were little, so they didn't have anything on the record yet. Um, <laughs> or ever, or ever, right, or ever. <laughs> um, Kelly was free and clear, so I don't know what they found you know, with me, but I had to go through all of that security. And, and, of course, they were sitting over there on the other side as I was going through everything, and they were just kind of laughing at me. But that ID had even a, another level of access because of that star and whatever that all meant. And I think I have a star on my ID now. But it's, it's interesting. We, we have all these forms of identification. We move to Lafayette. We, we go to the, the, the license branch. And we have to you know, change over our IDs to get the new address on there. And sure enough... I don't have all the right documents, or there's an address missing from somebody's document, and you know I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with my sanctification because I have to go all the way back home, I have to dig through a whole bunch of documents, I have to find everything that I need. I remember standing in line for, the pa for a passport, and we stood, stood in line for an hour, and Kelly is saying, do you have everything? You have it? Oh yeah, I got, I got it. I've got it all. I'm going through double-checking, triple-checking. You know, you get closer and closer. You've been standing in line, and then you hear somebody up front, and, 
And then they're all frustrated because they don't have the right thing, and they get sent. And so Kelly turns around. She says, are you sure? We're almost there. I do not want to have to come back. We get to the window. We start going through the documents. And sure enough, I am missing something. I forget what it was. I think I had a copy of a birth certificate, and we needed the original. And, uh, of course, Kelly was like, I told you something. You know? <laughs> and, and, of course, I felt, I felt bad. And, and uh, we had to turn around. We had to wait another week or two or whatever and get the right document. It, ident- identification is so important. Um, I, I don't want to take this on, a, on too much of a rabbit trail. We get frustrated because ID is so important unless you cross a certain border at a certain place somewhere south of here. All right. Then it seems like identification doesn't matter as much. But ID is so important everywhere we go. And then there's this perverted reprobate mind that has gotten into our culture that our identification is found somewhere inside of ourself and we may not even know what it is until we're 40 or 50 years old or older and even after we have won Olympic gold medals. I mean, it's ridiculous. And there's new variations of ID, of identity that are coming out. It's so wicked and so perverted that now we're finding litter boxes in school restrooms. Where is our identification to be found? Yes, we have an ID. We have an identification for practical purposes that has to be verified so that we can get business done, so that we can get certain transactions done, so that we can have access to certain things. But where is our identification to be found? It's to be found in Jesus Christ. The unsaved... All of us as created individuals, as human beings, homo sapiens, we are created in the image of God. We have a certain dignity. We have a certain identity as a human being, as one who has been breathed into him the breath of life so that man became a living soul. And as we have been learning again and reminded so well in our adult Bible study class and looking at life and understanding once again the supernatural creation of life and human life being distinct and different from animal life. We're not just a higher form of animal. So there is a certain identity as human beings, yes, and a certain identity for business transactions, for getting certain things done in the world. But where is our true identity? If we want to call it our spiritual identity, Where is it to be found? It's to be found in Christ. So an unsaved person is trying to find their meaning, trying to find their value, trying to find their identity in so many different places. And as our culture has pushed God to the fringes of society or pushed God out completely, man is lost searching for meaning and value and identity. So where else will will man go but to himself? It's a lie from Satan from the garden. Hath God said, ye shall be as gods. And that lie has continued and it has been repackaged and reprocessed and republished. And it's still in our culture today. 
That same lie. And where is unsaved man looking for his identification? In all of these various areas. From entertainment, to athletics, to art, to whatever it is. And many of those things are, are good and well and fine, but man doesn't stop there, does he? That's not where we're to find our identity in any of those, okay? Those areas that I just mentioned, sports and things, they have their place, but man is now going so far as to plumb the depths of his so-called authentic self and when man plumbs the depths of his authentic self, we know from Jeremiah, from the word of God, that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So what does man pull up from the depths of his authentic self deep down inside? He pulls up the dregs of the cup. He pulls up the sewage. He pulls up the wickedness of man's heart, his depravity. And now it is just everywhere. I was at an event the other night, and a certain group of individuals, rabid in their protesting and demanding their rights, yelling and screaming, and just down the street was a, another form of perversion going on, not that far from where we were, and unbelievable the rabid, diabolical, desperately wicked ways in which man is shaking his fist in God's face and saying, I determine my identity and no one's going to tell me otherwise. And if you don't celebrate my identity that I have made up, then you are to be punished. That is completely contrary to what we find in Romans chapter number 6. Romans 6 tells us where to find our identity. It's to be found in Christ. And Paul has spent time already up to this point as a lawyer almost going through various doctrines and making arguments for the sin of man, for man's depravity. And he comes to Romans chapter number 6 and there is a question almost like a prosecuting attorney yelling objection, and Paul comes to this point, and he is going to deal with one of these objections right here in these first 10 verses, 11 verses of Romans chapter number 6. He is expecting an argument against justification by faith. So we come to verse number 1 of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound. We see this phrase, God forbid, 14 times in Paul's epistles. It is the strongest term, the strongest phrase that is used in the Bible to deal with something that God refuses or that God forbids. So when he asked the question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He uses in verse number two that phrase, God forbid. May it never be. So what are some of the objections that are coming in this argument against 
justification by faith. Well, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, one of those arguments, one of those objections, is that if God's grace abounds when we sin, then let's continue living in sin so we might experience more grace. Another objection that comes later in the chapter, beginning at verse 15, that Paul deals with, is some are saying if we are no longer under the law, then we are liberated under grace and can live as we very well please. The libertarians. And then in chapter 7, Paul will deal with a third objection. And there are some who are even saying that Paul had made God's law sinful. So we will only be able to really address the first objection, that if God's grace abounds when we sin, then let's continue living in sin so we may experience more grace. That is an objection, an argument, ultimately against justification by faith. So we have to, in following Paul's argument, as he is dealing with this objection, as we follow Paul in his logic, and the Bible is very reasonable, the Bible is very logical. And I know that there is an element of faith that brings us to a place where we have to accept truths declared in the word of God that our minds cannot fully comprehend. But that doesn't mean that they're illogical. Yes, there is supernatural. Yes, they are beyond human's re- human reason. Human reason couldn't even get to these supernatural revelations. Man couldn't get to these soteriological truths on his own. They had to be revealed by God and received by man from God's very words, from his very mouth. They had to be revealed to man. Man can't get to God on his own reason, on his own logic. But the Bible is very logical, and there's a logical reasoning that Paul will use almost like a lawyer. And Paul was a very well-educated man. He was well-versed in the law. He knew how to make logical arguments. And I'm not going to do the, the, the best um, with this tonight, but I hope that we will see where Paul is coming from in his arguments for justification by faith and for understanding our identity is to be found in Christ because we are justified by faith. So we have to recognize that we are dead to sin. We are dead to sin. This is something that creates some debate in theological circles among scholars and theologians and commentators. But we see in verses 2 through 6, how shall we that are dead to sin live, live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are Buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So in understanding our identification in Christ, 
as Paul deals with this argument against justification by faith, as he deals with this first of three major objections, he brings us back to this point where we have to understand that as believers, saved individuals, with our faith and trust in Christ Jesus and him alone for our salvation, having repented of our sins, having put our faith and trust in Christ for our salvation, we are dead to sin. He makes that very clear in those verses. And he makes the point that that death was a specific act in past history. But we have to understand that that death brings deliverance not just from the penalty of sin, but also from its power. So we're talking about deliverance from the penalty of sin, but we're also talking about deliverance from the power of sin in our daily lives, in our Christian life, as part of our progressive sanctification. But we also have to understand the proper meaning of this word, Destroyed down there in verse number six. Destroyed means to be rendered or made of none effect. It means it, it means to be made powerless or inoperative. So here is Paul using specific words that deal with this aspect of the Christian life where we are dead to sin. And he uses the word destroyed there in verse 6. Rendered or made of none effect, made powerless or inoperative. So then he uses this term of baptism. Now this is a passage that is sometimes misunderstood. Let's go down and let's look there at verse number 3. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What is this baptism that he is referring to here? He is using, yes, water baptism, but is using it as a picture, as an illustration of spiritual baptism. Now, we are Baptists, and I'm a Baptist not just by preference, but by conviction. And one of the distinctives of being a Baptist is baptism by immersion. The word Baptist or baptism, baptizo in the original language, means to dip. Now, most of us, if not all of us, have had something along the lines of chicken nuggets or, I don't know, some sort of wings or something that we have had to dip in some sort of sauce. There are some weird people out there who even dip their chips in ketchup. I don't know why people do that, but some people do. Somebody argues, well, fries go in ketchup, and they're potatoes, so why not put potato chips in ketchup? Anyway, we understand 
that we put that fry, we put that nugget, we put whatever that food item is, we put that into that sauce and we dip it, we what? We immerse it. And what is the part that we eat? We eat the part that we have immersed. We eat that whole section that has been immersed in that dip. So, once again, as a Baptist distinctive, we practice by conviction, believing the best interpretation, and may I say the only interpretation, (laughs) is in proper interpretation, of that word baptizo is to dip, to immerse. So we baptize someone, we baptize them, and we place them under, into the water, and then bring them back up. Picturing Christ on the cross, his death and burial, and then his resurrection. So we come back to Romans chapter 6. And he is using, yes, water baptism, but he's picturing and using a spiritual illustration or analogy. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, but he's actually figuratively speaking of our spiritual baptism. As we, in a physical baptism, are brought down into the water and brought back up, so when we get saved, we are placed by the Holy Spirit in Christ. We are baptized into, we are placed into Christ by the Holy Spirit. We are placed in Him. And that is where we find our identification. Because we have been spiritually baptized, placed into Him. We are now identified with Christ. And there is a spiritual baptism that takes place by the work of the Holy Spirit that immerses us, places us in Christ. So we see baptism means immersed, placed in Christ, united and identified with him. So water baptism pictures spiritual baptism. And that is what Paul is ultimately Addressing here and using in his illustration to teach this great truth. So then from that flows logically, if we are dead to sin and its power has been broken, its penalty has been taken away through Christ, then we should not serve sin. We come to verse 6, the second half of the verse, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin for he that is dead is freed from sin now if we be dead with christ we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that christ being raised from the dead dieth no more death hath no more dominion over him for in that he died he died into sin once but in that he liveth he liveth unto god we are no longer a servant or a slave of sin we are free from sin and we have newness of life in christ Now, we have to think about it in this term, and I know theologians and I know scholars and good men can even disagree to a certain extent on this issue, okay? There are some who believe that the flesh has been eradicated. It has been annihilated and, in a sense, removed completely. The sin nature is gone. 
There are some who hold to the position that the sin nature is indeed dead. Its power and its effectiveness has been broken, has been destroyed. We just looked at that in our understanding of that word destroyed. Rendered or made of none effect. Made powerless or inoperative. So the flesh, the sin nature, clearly has no longer any power over us. So what is the deadness? Is it eradicated, annihilated, or is it just dead and it's there, present still within us? I believe that the sin nature is still present, but it is dead. It has been rendered powerless and ineffective, inoperative. But what happens when a corpse is left in a room not buried, not embalmed, and even if embalmed, left there for a while, there is a putrefying effect. Dan taught us even this morning about the fact that in ancient days, really not even ancient days, yes, in ancient days, and scripture was clear in the Mosaic Law how to deal with dead bodies and the disease and the bacteria and all that was involved with a dead body being left around, and that's why... They would bury them so quickly and not having all the embalming uh, abilities that we have today. There is a putrefying, a diseasing of anybody and anything that is around that dead body. We've probably experienced, if not a human corpse, we've probably experienced at least the presence of an animal corpse, an animal dead body. And we know how disgusting that smell is. There is a stench of death. There are some who have jobs in the fire department, police department, uh, coroner's office, whatever the case may be, where maybe you've experienced it, where you've had to uh, either willingly or not knowing, walked into a home where there was a dead body, where someone had died and you did not know that they were dead, a welfare check or something. And we have seen it. If you've experienced it, you know. But if not, you maybe have seen it on the news. Sometimes they will even go in with full gear on. Because there's such a stench, but also there is the putrefying, the disease, the, the way in which death affects still that room and people who come into contact or are exposed to that death. So the sin nature, though dead, Though powerless, rendered inoperative, it has a putrefying, it has a stench, it has still that influence to cause us to be tempted to disobey our God and to fall into sin, to be led into sin. We know from James that we are tempted by our own flesh, and when our, our, our lust uh, is consumed, uh, bring it forth death. We understand that there is temptation all around. We still sin as believers. Though we have been saved from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin, we still sin because there is that corpse of the sin nature that is still having a putrefying, deadening effect. What do we do? We take the corpse of the sin nature and we dress it up. We put lipstick on the corpse. 
We sprinkle some perfume. We make it nice. Oh, it's not that bad. Sin isn't that big of a deal. Oh, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. We take that corpse of the sin nature, and in, in a sense, we open up doors to that room so that death can get into other areas of our body, of our spiritual body, if I can say it that way. But we have a newness of life. I don't believe in the dogs of the old nature, the sin nature, and the new nature, and there are two dogs going at a dog fight, battling over who's going to have the victory. I don't believe that the sin nature and the new nature are in a dog fight. If you've ever seen that illustration, I remember growing up, and there was a doctrinal book that we had at our little Christian school, and uh, I learned later that that was not the right view, but it had in that book, in that doctrinal book, it had a picture of two dogs, and it said our old nature and our new nature are like two dogs fighting it out in the dog fight. And uh, I since <laughs> learned, grew up in my knowledge of the Word of God, to know that that's not uh, the, the proper illustration. We have a newness of life, a newness of quality and character, but there is a corpse that we're carrying around, a dead body we're carrying around, and we open doors. We walk in and we pour ointment on and we try to dress up the sin, and we are tempted and we are influenced and we are affected by sin, and we're led away. So we come again to another point that we just read a short time ago, that we should not serve sin because we are not a slave or a servant of sin. The sin nature has no power. We're free from sin. We have a newness of life in Christ, a new quality, a new character of life, and we are alive in him. It would be foolish for us to cater to the dead body. That would be just disgusting. But we do it in our own sinfulness, and our worldliness, in allowing temptation and lust and selfishness and whatever we want to call it to bring the influence of that deadness. And we, in a sense, cater to the dead body, cater to the corpse. Instead of living in the life, in the newness of life, in, in his resurrection power, being alive in him which then leads to living for him. And so we come to verse number 11. And we reckon. This is a term we don't use a whole lot. Maybe down south you hear, or some people will say, I reckon. Um, we don't use it again a whole lot um, around here maybe. But what is this word reckon? What is it all about? Reckoning means to count or number something with absolute, unreserved confidence that it is correct. It simply means to believe that what God says in his word is true and is true in our lives. Forty-one times we find this word in the New Testament, 19 times here in the book of Romans. So what is Paul saying? Verse number 11, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we have to reckon. We have to reckon with this truth. We have to reckon. We have to count. We have to number with absolute unreserved confidence that the sin nature is dead. That we are dead to sin. That we are alive in Christ. So when the temptation comes, 
when there is discouragement or doubts or whatever that besetting sin, whatever is the source or the cause or the influence that desire to pull us away, to sin against God, to disobey his commands and his principles, to not trust his promises, to not act in faith, and whatsoever is not of faith is sin. We have to, at those moments, and none of us do it perfectly, but still, this is what we are told and commanded and called to do. We have to reckon. We have to count it. We have to believe God's word. We have to claim God's word. And the world is saying, don't believe the word of God. The word of God is wrong about biology. The world, the, the world says that the Bible is wrong about marriage. The Bible says, or the world says that the Bible is wrong about all these different sins that the Bible is clear about. And there's that corpse that we want to open up, we want to look inside, we want to cater to, we look at that dead body in that room, and we want to come back to that sin nature that tempts us, that has that putrefying effect, and it would be a fool, it would be fools to do so. It would be foolish to do so. God forbid that we should continue in sin that grace may abound. We're to reckon, we're to claim once again, and believe in the absolute, un, with, un, with absolute unreserved confidence that God's word is true, that God is correct, and the world isn't, and that Satan is a liar. We can't believe his lies. Paul did not tell the Romans to even so much as feel or even understand, but rather act upon God's word and claim it for themselves. Because what happens? Ah, oh, I just don't feel like it. I don't feel... And this is where we are so sensual in our culture. And it's so much about feelings and so much about emotion. And emotion, feelings can be deceiving. There are good emotions and there are bad emotions. And we can't let our emotions control us. The Bible talks about the mind and the will. And so we have to not base our decision on feelings or even on understanding, but rather act upon God's word, reckoning with complete confidence. And that means that faith is an action and that we claim the promise of God and we act upon it. So as we come to the communion table here in just a moment, we may have to do some reckoning. Maybe we have to come back to our own heart and mind and soul and search, examine ourselves, as 1 Corinthians 11 says, and reckon, have I been dead to sin this week? Is there an area of my life that I am not reckoning as dead? That I'm still a servant of? I'm still opening that door. I'm peeking in that closet. I'm still allowing that putrefying effect, that stench of that old nature to tempt and to lead me away from obedience to Christ? Allowing that to influence? Where are we at tonight? It has to begin with me. First of all, as I have prepared this message, God has been dealing with me. But as we come to the Lord's table tonight, may we reckon once again. May we come to this place once again to count, to number with absolute unreserved confidence that God's word is correct and see ourselves before God's holy standard and come to him with the right heart, right with God, 
We're not perfect, but coming to God tonight with a pure heart, with holy hands, because we have reckoned this truth in our lives. And we have claimed the word of God, we've believed it, and we are living it out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the powerful truths from this passage as we've taken just a short amount of time to look at this passage, Lord, as we prepare our hearts and our minds, Lord, for the of the Lord's table. May, Lord, we do some reckoning, looking within and making sure our heart is right with you, examining ourselves, that, Lord, we will come to the communion table with hearts that are right, with no unconfessed sin, that we might partake of the Lord's table tonight in a way that would honor you, that would not bring reproach, or that would not bring judgment for having taken of the Lord's table unworthily. Lord, I thank you for these truths. Help us to live by them and to honor you. Bless now, even as we transition to the communion table, Lord, as we reflect upon the great salvation provided through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.